Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Dr. Keith Jagger, University Chaplain at John Brown University. Prior to coming to JBU, Keith served in pastoral ministry in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Keith earned his doctoral degree in New Testament at St. Andrews in Scotland. Well, I'm not sure about you, but this time of year is always an interesting one for me. Having started out uh, my adult life in college and university like you all are doing, um, then going on to seminary and then on to doctoral work, my internal world is organized in terms of semesters. So even when I was a pastor for the last five years, um, when the semester schedule had nothing to do with the rhythms of church life, I was still thinking very much in, in semesters. And so, um, so I'm, not about, I'm not sure how you're feeling right now, but the, you know, for me, the high ambitions of August have turned into the realities of late September. <laughs> All the responsibilities I took on at the end of the summer are real now. And in the very middle of it all, life is unfolding, uh, sometimes unexpectedly with some pain, uh, some moments of profound beauty in it all. And oftentimes feel that during this part of the year, um, I've enjoyed, I have enjoyed a mountaintop view of where I was going, but now I'm down on the path. I'm trying to keep hope that I'm on the right path. So this can leave me feeling a bit frustrated, um, tired, inadequate, and a little afraid, if I'm honest. And I'm dealing with this right now in my own ways. And so I'm not sure if you guys, I wouldn't be surprised if you guys are as well. And so that's, that's natural. Um, so I'm not sure what you've lived through in the last four weeks or how you're coming into this space right now or what you need today, but here we are again. As, and as God woke up before us today, as he set the table of our day for us and is with us now, we're gifted with another chance to draw all the threads of our complex lives into worship. And my prayer for us today is that we might not only have a heart that's ready to hear the word of God, but that God might speak to us each in our own ways and touch us and minister to us just where we need it. And rightly so, because today as we make our way through the Gospel of Mark, by the way, we're covering Mark chapter six and seven today, so if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Mark chapter six. Um, as we make our way through Mark's Gospel, we're reaching an incredibly important juncture in the life of Jesus. So let's begin now, spend the next 25 minutes or so in this transition point in Jesus's ministry where Jesus is gonna show us his profound worth in a new way. At the end of Mark 5, as you'll see, Jesus enters into the grief of a family and then raises their little girl from the dead, as you do. And as he left that place, he's rejected in his hometown. And then after that, he sends his disciples out two by two, ministering in the villages uh, to prepare the way for Jesus. So Jesus sends his disciples out. He doesn't need to be the center of all attention in his ministry. He shares his power with his followers and they go in pairs to preach the good news of God's kingdom. And after this, after this moment in Jesus's ministry comes as what I think is the end of act one. If you think about it in terms of plays, this is the end of act one of Jesus's ministry. So the final scene of act one starts with the recognition of how tired the disciples had become. 
weary of the relentless ministry of care, of preaching and healing they had been doing. And the company of Jesus and his followers received some terrible news that John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, his beloved cousin, had been killed for speaking out against the abuses of the Jewish leader of the land who had spent his kingship chasing after his half-brother's wife rather than tending to the needs of his subjects. So this is some soap opera stuff for real. Then as Mark tells us in Mark 6.30, the apostles gathered around Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. Their ministry was fruitful and the people out there were ready for Jesus' message. And Jesus said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest for a while. Jesus, a leader of immense drive and energy, understood the power of retreats. Come away to a quiet place without the pressing crowd and there you'll find some rest. I really love this part of Jesus. He knows that pressing through the grind of responsibility and life with, rel with relentlessness is not the way. We need a rhythm of breaks in our lives. We might even say this was part of Jesus' genius that we too easily avoid as we follow him. He infused into the DNA of the earliest church this idea of rest. And I think it's no accident that he didn't want them just to rest and take them away from the community of humans, but he brought them out to a deserted place which is the community of creation. So now as I'm getting settled in here at JBU, um, I hope in time that you'll come to learn my love for retreats and we get to experience some retreats together of spiritual getaway. But I wanted to take a moment today to share with you just a little bit about my love for the wilderness since we're getting to know each other. And just as those parts of my story that I told last time have shaped profoundly my devotion to Jesus, um, so too have by, been my experiences in wild places among trees and animals and wildflowers and weeds as they testify to God. So I grew up on the wooded bluffs of the Mississippi River in Illinois um, among the towering oak trees and the white-tailed deer uh, where most of the weekends um, and school night evenings I, I spent running through the ravine near my house. Uh, we lived in an old farmhouse which was renovated. It wasn't anything special, but uh, an old farmhouse and that had been, the property had been sold off decades earlier and so a subdivision had been built on the farmland. And um, we played for hours near the creek, building forts with our sticks and bridges with logs. And we had our own imaginary community of jungle warriors. And with that love in hand of being in the woods, of being outside and smelling the, the smell of nature, um, I joined the Boy Scouts as a 14-year-old. And some of my favorite memories were like weekend, long, weekend summer camps in Boy Scouts. That's where my love for survival and bushcrafting were born. So right before my 18th birthday, I finished my Eagle Project, which uh, was helping to reforest a part of some, some woods that had been torn down to build new drainage pipes. So I just adore the wilderness. I love getting out there. I love 
meeting God there every time I do. Um, my last solo retreat when I was out by myself in the woods meeting God was up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, in Canada, where we were living for the past many years. And I wanted to tell you this story in case we're ever caught in a survival situation, because I can survive out there. And so will you, um, if I can remember how to tie those knots. Um, I can tie a wicked knot. But I am also, you have to know this, I am terribly afraid of wild animals. <laughs> like, they terrify me. Um, and up in Thunder Bay, what I didn't know before I arrived there is they didn't just have wolves in Thunder Bay, they have timber wolves, which, I kid you not, are like small horses. They're giant. And while the locals, like the local residents there, told me that the wolves never really mess with humans, that didn't help. There was like no story in recent memory of, of a human being killed by a timber wolf, but I was terrified still. And so out on this retreat, I was um, a, a 15, or sorry, a half hour drive into the, to the bush and another half hour walk to my buddy's cabin back in the woods where I stayed the night. And it's fine, I had a great time. I got out there, I was sleeping just by myself and about 2 a.m. the wolves started howling somewhere really close. And it's terrifying if you've ever heard that noise. And so the next day, I had the full day to spend, and so I was huddled close to the cabin most of the day, until the afternoon I said, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to go for a walk. I'm going to get out there, but I wasn't going to go unarmed. Um, but the problem was is I was not armed. I didn't bring anything with me like that. And so uh, I, got, I got this big Gandalf stick that was about this high, and I found the, like, the rusted axe that was by the fire, and I'm like, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to protect myself. Well, it was uh, a beautiful day, a nice walk, and I met the Lord there, and we had a great time together. But the thing which gets talked about is that my buddy decided to come meet me at one of those moments on my walk. He was uh, on his four-wheeler, and he came out, and he saw me just like practicing my self-defense. <laughs> it's like, oh, what was I thinking? Um, so that, he won't let me live that down. But I love it when Jesus says to his disciples, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going during the healing ministry and they had no leisure, says Mark, even to eat. They, they, couldn't have, they didn't have time to eat, there were so many people coming at them. So that's a lot of ministry. So they go away on a boat to this deserted place by themselves. And the next thing that Mark gives us here is this scene of Jesus pulling onto the other side of the Sea of Galilee, like in, probably in a little fleet of boats. But, the gospel writers tell us, many on shore saw where they were going on their retreat and followed them on the land. And so when Jesus, weary, exhausted, in need of a break from it all, and more likely with his heart grieving from the loss of the news of the loss of John the Baptist. They're ready to stretch out their arms, take a break for a while from pouring out their life energy into the needs of humans. They were looking for a break from people. But instead, the synoptics tell us, as Jesus went there, he saw a great crowd forming. And this might be actually one of my favorite moments in all the Gospels. And Jesus might have responded if he were more like us, with at least internal, if not external, frustration. You know, he did, he did have it in him. He turned the, the money tables over in the temple at a later point in his ministry. He could have flipped over the boats. Why are you here? Get away from me. Don't you see my friends and I need a break? 
That could have been his easy response, but instead he did not lose his temper. And what Mark tells us is that immediately he had compassion on them. He didn't feel frustration or resentment or judgment. His instinct was to feel their sufferings first before he felt his own. Matthew and Luke tell us that instinctually he saw the crowd and he rolled up his sleeves, maybe even still just stepping off the boats. He saw the crowd there, rolled up his sleeves and put his sacrificial attention to the crowd, moving through them, healing them as he went. This was meant to be a time where Jesus was gonna get poured into by the Father, but he found himself once again pouring back out. A few weeks ago, I told you that my goal for the semester with Jesus was to paint a picture of devotion or to answer the question, the heartbeat question of this all, why is Jesus worthy of our devotion? Back then in that ancient time, he stood there ready to ask for his followers' devotion, and today he's alive in heaven and stands still asking for ours. By using the bridegroom imagery, as you'll remember me opening up a few times ago, Jesus is a powerful king and creator who chooses to move towards his creation and his subjects with curiosity and love. And more than anything, it's like he's down on one knee as a bridegroom extending his hand out to us. When Jesus says elsewhere in his ministry, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Come to me, get to know me, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and there you will find rest for your souls. That, his hand is stretched out there, but we, we listen to the second part of the invitation. He says, my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. We'd like Jesus to say, come to me, all you who are weary, and rest, and I will set you completely free as if the goal of a good life is freedom from all legitimate authority. But his invitation is into a yoke, which is a tool that you put on a beast of burden to plow your fields. And many of us really are wired to hesitate at this invitation, wired to question the proposals of authority It's a hesitation perhaps because of the examples of leaders that we've had in our lives. Leaders who ultimately want more from us than they want for us. Leaders who secretly love their institutions and their power and their benefits of taxation. Heck, rebellion against authority is built into the DNA of of the United States' national national story. We have been conditioned not to like a king. But that's how Jesus comes to us if we're honest, if we're open, as a king. And the reality of our situation, and this is so important as we learn to live in this world and to follow Christ, is that even if we could cast off every yoke of religious authority in our life, we'll never be unlinked individuals. The truth is that our choice of life is never between an authority and complete freedom, but between an authority and another authority. We are habitual and formable creatures, which means we are never unhooked from power. We will always be in service to some ideology or power, whether we like it or not, that's how we're created. So the question is whether you want to be yoked or not. The question before us is to whom will we yoke ourselves? Who is worthy 
of our devotion. And Jesus will show us in this story that unfolds for the rest of Mark chapter six and seven, that he's not just compassionate, he's not just powerful, he's not just a groom, but he's also patient and kind as a leader. Now the scene from the gospel unfolds in this way, and all four gospels have this memory, so the the memory of this event in Jesus' life is really strong, and I'm gonna fast forward a bit to get us to the point of it all. Dusk was coming upon the crowd, and this impromptu community had gathered and there was no food. There was 5,000 of them, and so take this room and times it by, I don't know, 12 or something. There was 5,000 men, probably more women and children. No food truck had been called. They were hungry, and hungry crowds are angry crowds. And his disciples say to Jesus, send them out, send them out to the countryside, into the villages to get some food, otherwise this is gonna turn poor. Um, And Jesus in response says to them, well how about you guys give them something to eat? Now Jesus isn't naive, he knows the situation and probably enjoys the disciples' ingenuity, their problem-solving capacities, but Mark tells us at the end of the reading today that Jesus was trying to reveal something to them through this line of gentle questioning. When Jesus walks on water just a few hours after this event, Mark tells us that the disciples still couldn't understand what Jesus was trying to do. He was waiting for an opportune time. He was going to use this moment, this moment which was marked by profound interruption and having to love another person or love a crowd or pour oneself out far beyond their own resources. This was the perfect moment of compassion and his desire to serve for him to reveal, to make the big reveal of of something that was deep inside of his personal uh, personhood. Um, But they missed it and they weren't ready for it. And although I think that he did something incredible here and he teased what he wanted to show them through the multiplying of food, he didn't really unleash his glory there on him like he perhaps wanted to. So I love this about Jesus. Um, Paul puts it this way, Jesus being in very nature God did not consider his godness something to be exploited, but he emptied himself taking on the form of a slave and he humbled himself. And this is what the early Christians came to love so much about Jesus. He's not an imposing force upon us, but he comes with kindness and gentleness. He's gonna walk in step with them and not move beyond what they're ready to hear. And so he continues, he said, there's a situation before us, friends, and we know that only God himself could provide food for this amount of people, as he has in the past in the wilderness in Israel when they, were, when they had left Pharaoh and they were out in the, the, the wilderness. Um, but they didn't get it. They didn't see where he was going. And so he says, well, why don't you give them something to eat? And their response is, is very natural. They said, what? How are we going to feed these people? We'd have to pay like $40,000 just for the food. And we're, just, you know, we're following you around poor and empty of, of, uh, of, of, of wealth. We just have our sandals in handbags. You can imagine Jesus going, oh man, they're not getting it. So what should I say? He says, how many, what do we have? What did we bring with us? We have two loaves of bread and one fish. So they ruffled through their things, and long story short, Jesus 
thanked God for this food, raised it up to heaven, broke the two loaves into groups of 10 and the fish into portions of 10. So these tiny little things probably in their handbags. He says, go and serve these to the people. And the gospels don't tell us how this works. Probably because in the, in the moment they were so disoriented by um, what they were supposed to do. You know, they, they went to one group of, of people and they handed out a piece of bread and they walked back and there was more in their, their bag. Just this unbelievable miracle that they, they probably didn't even make sense of just then. And so they did it and they passed out food and everyone had food to eat and there was even more left over. And then Jesus disperses the crowd. He says, go home now. This is, we're done. Uh, I need my retreat. Disciples, I'm going to send you out. Get back on your boat. He pushes them back out towards, towards where they came from on the Sea of Galilee. And he goes up, not to sleep. Jesus knows that he's not in need of physical rest. He's in need of the Father coming to minister to his grief and his weariness. And so he stays up all night long to pray on the mountainside and meet the Father. And Matthew, Mark, and John all narrate what happens next. The disciples were out on the lake rowing and a wind had come up against the front of them and they were struggling. And Jesus thought, okay, this could be the moment. They, they didn't quite get what I was trying to say to them with the bread, but this could be the moment. And so what does he do? He takes his step onto the water, defying physics. And he walks out on the Sea of Galilee, which if you've been there, you know it's quite deep. He's not a magician. He walks out on the water. And he could have spent some time walking around, around the lake to meet them, but he's, he sees his friends struggling. And so Mark tells us that he intended to pass them by. This wasn't like Jesus trying to beat them to shore. This, this is a phrase of, of a Jewish, uh, in their Jewish mindset, this is a phrase which meant that like God who passed by Moses to show Moses, his God's full glory, Jesus meant to reveal it then and there, a transfiguration moment that the disciples weren't ready for a few hours before. But Jesus notices something, that he comes out, he's ready to just unveil his full glory to them, and they were terrified. They thought he was a ghost. They were so worried um, and just completely horrified by the scenario, as probably you and I would be, that he realized, oh, now's not the moment. Jesus and God, they never reveal to themselves, God never reveals himself to human beings when he knows that it will short circuit our wiring. Because he's a gentleman. So rather than showing his followers his glory, he keeps it hidden and just steps back into the boat with them. Don't worry, it's just me. Take heart, do not be afraid and they did not understand. People of Christ, followers of Christ, we need to learn Jesus' methods. We need to understand who he is. We need to get our brains into uh, his, his ways. We need to be disciples. But being disciples is the foundation of something much greater, which is choosing to take hold of his hand, bowing our knee to him in return, implementing the total rule of his kingship in our life, in every dimension, in every aspect of our lives. When we listen to Jesus, really when we hear him call, call us, we find that he's asking for everything. It's not Christ over some part of our life. It's Christ over all of it. 
And when he calls us to put our relationships under him, to learn to forgive infinitely, to choose to honor foreigners and honor enemies, that's devotion to Jesus. When we put our finances under him, not being afraid of wealth, but recognizing that money is an alternate vying authority in our life. When we choose our allegiance to God rather than mammon, that's devotion. When we put our futures and vocations under him and we don't hitch ourselves slavishly to some program which is just wanting ongoing production without any rest. And we can, I, I've been there. I've, I've hitched myself to, to programs that wanted my ceaseless productivity. When we choose not to do that but to hitch ourselves to healthy programs that want our rest, that's devotion to Jesus. His way is the way of salvation, but it can be scary sometimes and we can flake out. And that's why this whole semester, I'm just inviting you over and over again to the idea that we need to remember why Jesus is worthy of our devotion. Not just because he's powerful to heal, which he is. Not just because he's a, bride, a, a bridegroom who understands the human heart and can teach us to have healthy human hearts. But because he is patient and gentle and kind and the most pronounced gentleman in all creation. One way to do this, there's a couple ways that I'm inviting us to, to think about. How, how do we keep, um, how do we recognize the worth of the authority that we're hitching ourselves to? One way to do that is to watch for the character of the leader. In your lives, you will be hitched up to a lot of different leaders. Are they patient? Are they kind? Do they understand suffering? Do they understand that you are a work in progress? Will they stick with you when you're trying to work out your life? Are they kind with our apparent clumsiness? Can they see through our stupid moments, because we all will have them, and can they see our brilliance underneath the stupidness? Life can sometimes feel like a game which starts to play us. But what are we gonna give our life to? The second way, I think, to keep in touch with proper authorities, is to see how we're becoming. Once we're hitched to an authority, we become the, like we take on the character of that authority. So are we growing in patience and kindness? Are the people that we are leading feeling like we are slavishly pressing them on to produce over and over again? Or are we gonna lead the people who we have authority over into rest and relaxation? I'm not talking about negating hard work. I mean, Jesus called his disciples to an impossible task of starting the church in the Roman Empire. But the way in which we ask those who are in our authority to do impossible tasks makes all the difference. How do we know that our authorities are worthy of our devotion? Because of their character and because of how we're becoming, how they're, what they're shaping us into. And in this story, Jesus wants to reveal it all to them. Fully human, yet our very creator in the flesh. Kind, compassionate. He's not a a slave-driving leader. He will never force himself upon the people that that will follow him. If by doing so, it will cause them to short-circuit. 
which is why he discerned that he needed to do a gentle line of questioning rather than just overwhelming them. Authority, this kind of king who is patient, compassionate, and loving. He's the one that's holding out his hand to us. And if you'll remember, the way to devotion to Jesus is a bit of a journey. We're first intrigued by Jesus, and then we become, become familiar with him, and then we come to love him, and then we come to adore him. And so wherever you're at along this journey, I'm gonna keep inviting us further and further into the question to show us just how worthy he is. He's the only one worth yoking our precious lives to. And here we are at the end of act one. He shows us what he's capable of. He shows us his character. He shows us what he can do, but he's not Pharaoh, or he's not Pharaoh and he's not Herod. And so as we move on into his life, we, we turn the page into act two, where he's gonna show us his vision for love of all, of all creation. He's gonna show us just how deep his teaching of service and humility goes. And step by step, as we'll see, we'll find that he is profoundly worthy of our devotion. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.